Our scripture today is from Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the living word of God for us today. I'm gonna ask you to pray with me one more time. Father, we ask in these moments that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit in us, show us what it means to follow you. In Christ's name, amen. If you have your Bibles, let's grab them online, grab your Bible or your device, whatever it may be. We're going to go to the Gospel of Matthew today. We begin a verse-by-verse biblical exposition of the most important sermon ever preached. It is, as the title of the message says, the sermon that changes everything. And y'all, I mean everything. Thing. Our study through the Sermon on the Mount begins today, and it will go all the way to Easter. So just be prepared for that, that uh, as we move through these chapters in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it'll take us right up to Easter Sunday 2021. It means every message will be a red-letter message, meaning every message is, in effect, simply Jesus' words to us week after week. John Don, 16th century cleric in the Church of England, summarized a description of this sermon well when he wrote, as nature hath given us certain elements and all our bodies are composed of them, and art hath given us a certain alphabet of letters and all words are composed of them. So our blessed Savior in these three chapters of this gospel hath given us a sermon of texts of which all our sermons may be composed. All the articles of our religion, all the canons of our church, all the injunctions of our princes, all the homilies of our fathers, all the body of divinity is in these three chapters in this one sermon, end quote. Will not be long in this sermon, you all, when it's blessedness will begin to feel like intrusiveness. (laughs) He addresses not just our behavior, but our heart. I think it's summarized well by New Testament scholar Scott McKnight when he wrote, the Sermon on the Mount is the moral portrait of Jesus's own people. Because this portrait doesn't square with the church the sermon turns from instruction to indictment. It it moves beyond, honestly, encouragement to, to, to prying underneath our behavior to motives and desires and longings and attitudes. Perhaps Dean Smith said it best in the everyman's language of this statement he made, the Sermon on the Mount has a strange way of making us better people or better liars. Indeed. 
uh, lest you think that the sermon is, is going to you know, break us down and leave us broken on the side of the road, please know this. The sermon is fundamentally not about death. It's about life. Here's how I want you to think about the Sermon on the Mount. It is Jesus doing an exposition of his own words. So the Sermon on the Mount is this. When Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and might have it abundantly, the Sermon on the Mount is an exposition of what he meant. Abundantly, profusely, extraordinary, remarkable. You're gonna hear, Rob and I use the word flourishing because it captures what the Sermon on the Mount is about and what God intends for us. This morning, I'm just introducing the sermon. So, you know, this is just kind of the runway. We're not gonna quite get off the ground per se, but we gotta have this runway, this framework, if you will, if we're gonna understand it, if we're gonna apply it biblically. And I, and I assure you, as, as we go through here, y'all, you're gonna find, you know, the Sermon on the Mount has got some rabbit holes people have gone down and never returned from. And we've got to have some guidelines for our own understanding and application. I'm gonna give you four, or I'm gonna give you three contexts that are gonna help us do that. Earlier in the week, uh, I was reading a New Yorker magazine article. This medieval historian was simply making the point in an interview that, um, that you know, in, in the dark ages, you know, plagues and epidemics, pandemics, all those things, they, as, as horrific as they were, that removed from them historically, you look back, and it's actually during those times that many of the greatest movements forward for humanity arose. It's, it's like out of the ashes of that arose, and they used it as an example, for example, as an example, the, um, the Renaissance. Now, I'm, I, you know, I want to orient us, first of all, to where we are in our own time in history. And y'all, we're not in the bubonic plague. We're not in that measure of upheaval. I don't want to overstate that. But may I say, and, and, and I hope you might agree, that we are, you know, in a historic moment. Well, what do I mean by that? You can say that all the time. Well, no, you, I don't know we say that all the time. We are in a season of, of global season of life. I'm telling you, things are massively disruptive. It's, yes, the global pandemic. Yes, the civil unrest. Yes, frustration and anger pent up globally, not just in our own country around social injustice, racial inequity. Uh, an upcoming election, you know, that quite frankly could probably be the most contentious, divisive, and polarizing in, in our own nation's history. Uh, all those things are disrupting the world in, in ways that, you know, in our lifetimes, I don't know that we would hit again. And Please hear me when I say this. You know, this, this is a unique moment, but listen, this moment will pass. It will pass. But how we live in the moment is gonna have massive ramifications. I, I don't think this is an exaggeration for at least a generation to come. How we, the church, lives in these moments. While I was in seminary, I, I kept a little three by five index card next to my computer and uh, Dr. Howard Hendricks had said in class one day, he used this phrase, he said, as now, so then. And I just wrote it on a three by five card, as now, so then. I put it by my computer. 
because it was a reminder to me that, you know, when you're in seminary and oftentimes, you know, when you're in school, it could be this way or even in life, you kind of think, you know, one day I'm gonna do this. One day I'm gonna be this way. And it was, that phrase reminds me, no, you know, as now, Lloyd, so then. What you're gonna be then, Lloyd, when you're out of seminary is what you are now, Lloyd, while you're in seminary. And so it, it, it's helpful to us to say, you know, well, you know, in the future, things will be this or I'll be this. No, no, no. As now, you all, so then. Our, our choices as a community of faith, as individual Christ followers, as now, you see, will shape the then that is to come. If I can put it in terms that get us to the Sermon on the Mount, in times of great disruption, transition and uncertainty, people need certainty and, and they need hope. And in a nutshell, can, can I say this? I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to the choir. They need Jesus. They, they need Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is a portrait of Jesus in his own words. So they, they need to see that portrait of Jesus. That's, that's what it is in his own words. So when I say the world needs Jesus, um, you know, you could say, you could walk out of here, you know, and, and, and go to the world and say, look, read this. You need, read, read that description of Jesus. You need Jesus. But what the gospel and the, all of scripture makes clear is God has so ordained that the world will see Jesus not by reading the Sermon on the Mount, but by seeing your life and my life. That's the truth, you all. That where you live, work, and play, you're there, okay? And, and the world needs Jesus. And their best picture, okay? In fact, for many, their only picture is gonna be you. How you respond, how you live, what you say. Your values. So God's message of hope to the world is fundamentally, it's, it's really even, can I, can I say this? It's not really the words we're studying. It's the life you and I live right now. You and I being more and more like Jesus. Gosh, y'all, that is, I'm trying to just boil it down to its essence. Isn't that why we're here? And isn't that the great hope of the world? And what it means to be more like Jesus, I'm telling you, it's not any clearer. If Colossians was the whole theology of Christ, I'm telling you, the Sermon on the Mount is, it's a living portrait of Jesus and how he, how he lived, worked, and played. We can say it that way. With that, let me give you three contexts that help us understand and apply it. I'm gonna give you a redemptive historical context. I'm gonna give you a biblical context and I'm gonna give you a theological context and then we will apply the text itself. Let's start with a redemptive historical context. This, if you've been here for a while through the summer, this is, this is easy. I'm gonna move through this quickly because redemptive historical simply means how does, how does God show how he's gonna redeem humanity through the whole of the Bible? That's what I mean, redemptive historical context. We just studied Israel in the wilderness in which God takes his people who are in bondage 
He rescues them from bondage. He takes them through a wilderness to the land that he has promised them. Fast forward several thousand years. We're in the gospel accounts. And as we study the Sermon on the Mount, you know, we're in this time in redemptive history when God has redeemed his people in bondage to sin by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, is bringing his people through the wilderness and will one day put his people under his perfect rule forever in the promised land. Everybody with me? So you see, and I said this back when we were in the study, that the great redemptive act of being rescued from bondage in Egypt foreshadows the greater redemptive act of God sending his only son to die on the cross for our sins. That's the redemptive historical context. And we've got to keep it in mind when we study this sermon. Jesus is the greater Moses, okay? That's the point. Jesus is the greater Moses. I want you to think with me for a moment. Probably one of the most indelible moments that we have of Moses I, want to, I don't know that it's in Egypt. I don't even know that it's the Red Sea with him holding his arms up. I think possibly the more memorable and significant one happened at the tip of Mount Sinai when Moses went to a place, a geographical place, and he received the law of God and he gave the law of God. Are you with me? I think Now, what was the geographical feature of that place where he got the law. I'm not tricking you at all. I mean, you think about it. Where did he get the law? What was the geographical feature? Okay, now look at Matthew chapter five, verse one. Here's how the Sermon on the Mount begins. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. You all... That is no accidental, random statement. It is the exact wording of Moses who went up on the mountain, received the law, and gave it to the people. So you see, the Sermon on the Mount, can you see this? Is Jesus on the mountain, it's a hillside by the way, on the mountain, receives the law, which we're gonna see in a moment, it's more than that. And he gives the law. Everybody with me? So, so, so he's the greater Moses and we've, that'll help us in our own interpretation. Moses gave the law. Now watch where Jesus goes. Look at chapter five, verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. Say, <laughs> Jesus, what did I say? He's the greater Moses. Can I say this? He, when Jesus says he fulfills the law, and we'll cover that passage in a few weeks, he is the law. What do you mean he is the law? Well, the law is the nature and essence of God. Well, that's what Jesus is. We'll talk about the implications of this in a moment. Redemptive historical context. 
How about the biblical context? What do you mean biblical context? Well, where does the sermon occur in the Bible and in what context? Well, it occurs in Matthew's gospel, okay? This is important to keep in mind. As we study the particulars, we gotta always remember, we're studying particulars within the context of a gospel that Matthew wrote. And do you know what the theme of Matthew's gospel is? The kingdom of God. So we gotta always keep that in our heads. Okay, okay, this is happening within the context of him speaking of the kingdom of God. Now he says the kingdom of heaven. Is it the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? Yes. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven are synonymous. Matthew writes, and as, as any good Jew, Jew, Jewish, you know, the Jews would not mention the name of God, right? They don't wanna say Yahweh. And so Matthew uses heaven, okay? Instead of saying God. So, so kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, saying. Matthew's entire gospel is the promised king has come. Look, he's born of the line of David, miraculous birth. He's the validated king. Well, look at the works that he does. He heals the sick, opens the eyes of the blind. He's the prophetic king who fulfills the law, the greater Moses. He's the priestly king who will give him, he's not gonna kill a lamb. He is the lamb who will be slain for the sins of the world. And y'all, he is the supreme king. Think Colossians. He's the image of the invisible God. Think of any gospels you read, but in Matthew's gospel, he is over nature. He is over spirits. He's over demons, visible, invisible. He's over kings. He's over rulers. They all obey him. Why? Because he's sovereign king over all. The biblical context the kingdom of God. Now we see it in the text itself, and I want you to look at this. There, there are two bookends around the Sermon on the Mount. There's a beginning bookend and a, an ending bookend. The first one is in Matthew 4, verse 23. And he went, through all, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and doing what? Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Well, there's a bookend on the back and it's found in chapter nine, verse 35. Again, these are summary statements. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming what? The gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Why does... Why does Matthew intentionally bookend the Sermon on the Mount with this proclamation of the kingdom because the king has come. Wait no more. The kingdom is now because the king has come. He's the greater Moses. He's the promised king. And I want to take you thirdly to a theological context. Well, what do you mean theological context? I could have called this maybe something else, but I'm, I'm answering this question. What's the theological principle that undergirds every part of the Sermon 
on the mount that, that would guide us when we get to that point of application. Okay, what, what's the guiding principle here in terms of how, how and why I apply this text, okay? It's theological context. Now, to, to see it, we're gonna do what you're never supposed to do when you read a book, and that is we're gonna read the end before the beginning. So go to chapter seven and look at verses 28 and 29. This is what Heather read. Chapter seven, 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. If you're reading from the NIV, we read and teach from the ESV, you have the word amazed, which is, is good, but I think astonished captures the sense of the, the Greek word uh, tighter, clearer, um, more closely. It's ekpleso is the, is the Greek word. I'm just gonna read out of my Greek interlinears. You know, I look up these definitions. Here's the sense of this word astonished, trans, translating astonished. To be or become astounded to such a degree as to nearly lose one's mental composure. Like I didn't say that, that's what the Greek interlinear said. It's like Jesus blew their minds apart. <laughs> it's literally, they're just out of their heads. Like, oh my gosh, what did he just say? How is it that Jesus blew their minds? Well, that's here in the end too. Look at verse 29, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. To have authorities, to, to have the right, the prerogative to rule, to have the capacity and the, the means by which to rule and this is where we grab the redemptive historical context and we take the biblical context. We say, oh, what's blowing their minds? Well, here's what's blowing their minds. They suddenly realize Jesus is saying he's the greater Moses in the Sermon on the Mount. It gets crazy, you all, because you know, Jesus is gonna, I, I can't communicate to you how, how venerated and exalted for, for the original audience Moses is. You know, I don't know that we feel that way about Moses, but Jesus comes along and says, now the law said, Moses said, but I say, what? You know, it's like he goes above and beyond. Why? Because he's the greater Moses. And they see that, they, they are picking it up and it's blowing their minds. And two, they note that he, he's the promised king, the ruler in whom we've been waiting. They had a different picture of what that kingdom would be. But he demonstrates that all of creation lies under his rule. In other words, the original listeners, they hear this, and I'll tell you what's brewing in them is this. This guy is saying he's equal with God. <laughs> that will blow your mind. And that's what the sermon will do to you and me. If we hear it, if we hear it, what does it mean to hear it? Like, you mean read it? Well, that's the start. What does Jesus mean when he says hear it? Look with me at chapter seven, verse 21. I can't wait to get here, but this will be all the way to next Easter. You know, we'll get there. 
But he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everybody's in, but only, he doesn't say only here, but the one, which means, but only the one who does the will of my father. Then just go down. I'm not gonna read the whole paragraph, but many of you know the story. Look at verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Here's the bottom line, you all. To hear the sermon is to do the sermon. To not do the sermon, to not do what Jesus says do in the sermon is to not hear it. Uh, It's like the Sermon on the Mount, it's not a podcast. What do I mean by that? Well, I I don't know about you, but you know, I listen to certain podcasts and you know why I listen to them? Because they just have this quirky information that's like, that's so cool. And they want to tell your friend, did you know that blah, blah, I listened to a podcast and I didn't realize blah, blah, blah. You know, we're just getting this information. It's just, that's so interesting. That's not what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's not just to inform us. It's not just to tell us things. It's, to change us, but it changes us when we hear it. And for Jesus, there is no hearing apart from the doing of what he says, which is why this theological context is so important. I say it this way. Jesus's authority is the fundamental theological truth embedded within the Sermon on the Mount, which means every time he gives a principle to apply, every time he gives a command, it comes down to this question. Am I under the authority of Jesus? See that? So it's not Rob and I, you know, teaching the Sermon on the Mount and going, you know, this is, this is what it says, you know, are you, are you gonna do it? No, it's like, this is what Jesus says. And, 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 and it's not us kind of look. Even, you know, myself going, gosh, am I gonna do, am I gonna do that? It's, the, it's always this. Are you my authority in life? Because if you are, it's not the if, it's the when and the how. You see, it, 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 I, I must, you're my authority. Those of you who are members at Fellowship got a letter this week. In the mail, you got a letter. And it was simply the text of the Sermon on the Mount. And there was a little card that said, before you read it, pray this prayer, say this to Jesus. Jesus, show me what it means to follow you. And then we said, read it. Read it alone. Read it by yourself. Read it with your spouse. Read it with a friend. Read it with your kids. But you start with, Jesus, show me what it means to follow you. Heather read the last back end verses we were looking at today. And then I went immediately and said, let's pray. And I prayed 20 minutes ago, Jesus, show us what it means to follow you. We're now 25 minutes into this message. And I think if anything is clear, I hope is clear, it's this. What it, what it means to follow Jesus is to do what he says. <laughs> that, oh, it's, it'll always be that. To follow him means to do it, to do what he calls us to do. 
And so here's our application question for today. And I'm gonna ask you, you know, this is, it's, it's time, you know, it's time to decide. And I'm gonna invite you by the power of the Spirit, the Lord so speaks to you. Are you willing to follow Jesus by doing what he says to do throughout our study of the Sermon on the Mount? I'm gonna literally give you time right now to answer that question. Not to answer it, I really invite you to answer it right now. As now, so then, now. May I say this, if you have not placed your faith in Christ, and I, and I hope you're online watching, or if you're in the room, you never have, and I'm glad you're here. This, this, this sermon's actually not for you. That's kind of weird to say, but it's not. You see, the sermon, Jesus is speaking to those who are his. See, you're, if you've not placed your faith in Christ, you're not in the kingdom yet. And so this, this is not for you. This is for those who are in the kingdom. Are you gonna do what Jesus says? Uh, I, wanna, I wanna show you something. I, I, began with, I began with those quotes about the sermon. I thought it'd be good to end with a quote about the sermon. But this is a quote not about the sermon, but about Christians and the sermon. And it comes from an Orthodox Jewish rabbi who, you know, you gotta say this, okay, so he's not so much into the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus, but he's pretty acute. He's a pretty acute observer of Christians and Christianity. And I want you to note what he says. Orthodox Jewish rabbi said this, the history of Christianity is the history of Christians trying to evade the Sermon on the Mount and avoid living according to its plain meaning, end quote. Ouch. And good. And good. May that not be true of me. May that not be true of us as a community of faith. I'm gonna give you a few moments. I'm gonna invite the, the band to come out and I'm gonna invite you to take the Lord's table elements. So I want you to have the Lord's table elements in your hand. I didn't bring mine up. So grab the Lord's table elements. Those of you at home, grab the table elements. Go ahead and peel those off and you're gonna have the bread in your hand. You're gonna have the cup prepared to take. And I want these elements physically in our hands as we answer this question. So, holding symbol, symbols of the body and blood of Jesus, this is the, I'm very intentional in this. Holding these in your hand, answer the question. Am I willing to follow Jesus by doing what he says throughout our study of the Sermon on the Mount? I'm not trying to be legalistic here, you all, but I am trying to call us to a tangible expression of our faith. And so with bread and cup in hand, here's what I'm gonna invite you to do. This is not for everyone. 
in the room. Some of you can make this decision in your mind. But the Bible is so replete with God inviting us to engage things. You know, it's never, it's not just about thinking mental thoughts. You know, you, oh, I'm mentally praying in my head or, you know, Am I willing to follow Jesus? Mm, yes, I'm. In, and do it in your head. No, sometimes God invites us to to mark that mental decision physically. And so, if you feel so led, I'm going to ask you to stand up. If that answers yes, you know some of you don't feel comfortable doing that. But if you, you know, sometimes in the Christian life, we need to mark, we need to recommit, we need to make statements. I'm, I'm in, Lord, today. And if you are, I want to invite you in these next few moments. Answer the question. Some of you may want to stand for yourself. I will, Lord. I will follow you. Take a moment and speak to God. And you decide. If led, you can stand. I'd like everybody to go ahead and stand. Those who, who remain seated, I know that, that don't, no one's judging you. Um, you're good. We'll have a stand all together as we take the bread and the cup. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread. and After giving thanks, he said, this is my body broken for you. And Jesus, we are standing on the edge of the Sermon on the Mount. It is about doing what you say. We can't apart from your spirit. But because your spirit lives in us, because you have lived and died in our place, we must. Because you're the greater Moses, because you're the promised king, because you are the authority in the universe. We recognize you as our own. For your body given for us, we say thank you. Take and eat the bread. And he took the cup on that night and he said, this is my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. blood life is in the blood. This is Jesus saying, I've given my life to establish the new covenant by which it's my life, death, and resurrection in your place that forgives your sins, that gives you a right standing with God. For such love and commitment to us, Lord Jesus, we are grateful and thankful. And today, on the edge of this sermon we'll explore for the next 30 some odd weeks, We submit ourselves to your authority. Thank you for dying in our place.
we proclaim your life, death, and resurrection historically. And we're proclaiming you're coming again one day. Even as we take this cup, take and drink the cup. And may we respond in the most appropriate ways by declaring the greatness of Jesus, our King.